So hey, don't look now, but this month, May 2021, Four Songs becomes one year old. And to anyone who's appeared on this show, anyone who's listened, and anyone who's helped along the way, thank you, thank you, thank you. And a big special hats off to Tony from The Pug for his support, and of course my beautiful wife Kathy for her patience and encouragement. And with that, on with the show. So I've talked a lot about the band that influenced me over my life, and of course the big ones are The Clash and Ian Hunter slash Mott the Hoople. Those bands are almost mystical to me. Maybe it was because they came from England or because they struck such powerful images. But for me, The Clash, Mott the Hoople, Ian Hunter, even bands like The Sex Pistols, Big Harding Dynamite, etc., 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 they were larger than life. They were almost mythical. And no one, and I mean nobody where I grew up, was listening to them when I was. They were mine. But here's the thing. Of all the wonderful, evocative things these bands were to me and where they led me, the one thing they weren't was relatable. I mean, I'm not a punk rocker. I love the music, but I didn't really understand the message until years later. In fact, it wasn't until I came across a loud, catchy, feedback-drenched song called Somebody to Shove on MTV when I was a junior in high school that I really found the first band I could truly, honestly relate to. And that band was Soul Asylum. There was something about the energy, the raw frustration, the crashing, crunching guitars of that song that just hit me. The energy felt like the clash, but the look and the feel was totally different. The guys in the clash wore military fatigues or leather bondage gear. Ian Hunter and his Montehoople bandmates wore high heels, shades, and other glam rock trappings. The guys in Soul Asylum, they wore torn up t-shirts and jeans. I wore torn up t-shirts. The hair was a mess. My hair was a mess. And it seemed to me the last thing on their mind was being popular or looking cool. And for a 16 year old who wasn't exactly popular or cool, I could see myself as these guys. There's no mysticism about lead singer Dave Perner or lead guitarist Danny Murphy. They seemed normal, real. They didn't seem all that different from me, except that they were on stage and I was an adoring fan. While Dave Perner wrote the majority of the band's songs, it was guitarist Danny Murphy who was the unsung hero, almost like Mick Jones to Dave Perner's Joe Strummer. Dan wrote most of my favorite solo asylum songs, and he had this cool, casual swagger about how he handled his Les Paul guitar. His songs and solos were tasteful, which I know doesn't sound like a great cow punk descriptor, but it makes sense. There's a workman-like quality to his playing. Not flashy, not thrilling, but always on point. And another thing about Soul Asylum. They were my gateway musical drug. I came across them at the time when my own tastes were growing. For you see, in addition to carrying on the great Minneapolis punk traditions of bands like The Replacements and Husker Du, Soul Asylum was also an early pioneer of so-called alt-country. And most importantly, they led me to the holy grail of my college years, Golden Smog. Golden Smog was the traveling libraries of my generation, because in addition to Danny Murphy from Soul Asylum, the group also included Gary Lewis and Mark Perlman of the Jayhawks, Craig Johnson from Run Westy Run, and that's right, Jeff Tweedy from Wilco, before Wilco became the next great American band. Golden Smog recorded one EP and four full lengths, with material rivaling anything released by their own original bands. For the guys in the group, Golden Smog was a release, a creative, emotional outlet amongst friends that never became too serious. For me, Golden Smog was the most important band of my college years. Their first LP, Down by the Old Mainstream, came out when I was 20, and it quickly became my treasure map. Not only did the songs speak to me, but it led me to bands like Wilco, 
Uncle Tupelo, Sunvolt, the Honey Dogs, and of course, on and on and on, the greater alt-country universe. This is the album that defined my first few years as a legitimate adult, and as usual, it was Danny Murphy's songs that meant the most. He left Solo Solomon in 2012, appearing every now and again for Golden Smog reunion show. He's been running a virtual pinup art gallery called Grapefruit Moon full-time since leaving the band. Out of the blue, I saw him on Twitter and sent him an email via his art gallery. We started emailing about the possibility of him appearing on the show. And it turns out that not only would he do it, he's been writing new material for an album coming out next year. So in addition to discussing two of my favorite songs from Down by the Old Mainstream, Ill-Fated and Red-Headed Stepchild, we also chat about two brand spanking new songs, Fresh New Hell and Rosary. I'm your host, Rob Thormeyer, and it is my high honor to welcome Dan Murphy to Four Songs. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for tracking me down at my gallery and making the appropriate emails. I appreciate the opportunity as well. Oh, no problem. So first things first, is everyone gets the same questions. I started this <laughs> uh, back in May when this pandemic was just starting. Well, you know, people were just kind of realizing that we were in trouble. But how have you been? I have been really, um, I didn't realize I was such a social person. It's been really hard for me. Well, how's it affected? Because I know you've been doing some writing lately. Yeah, how, I mean, it was good for writing, but I, I didn't, I mean, I, I don't see myself as a particularly social person, but mm-hmm. just night after night after night, just like, well, what am I going to do tonight? Like, sit on my couch or lie on my bed or go down to the, you know, so it's, your options are so minimal, I guess. And I felt like the second round, I feel like that's been really hard because everybody's just kind of beat up from it and it was kind of mm-hmm. starting to show a little bit of light. And, you know, Minneapolis had that whole, you know, just it's been just a the brutal summer here. Yeah. George Floyd and all that. I mean, there's whole sections of the city that are just burnt down. Mm-hmm. And there's still whole sections that are boarded up, you know. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think Minneapolis has been, um, the disease hasn't been as bad as other cities, but it's been kind of the epicenter of the unrest in some ways. And that's, Something I really think about a lot. Well, how I know you got your your Grapefruit Gallery business too, the Grapefruit Moon Gallery rather. How has has that been affected? I'm sure it has. But you know, I got to be honest. I mean, I'm, I'm not gloating or anything, but it's completely an internet experience for people. Okay. I mean, we do have a gallery you can go into, but we don't serve coffee and donuts. So it completely exists online, and we have a pretty captive audience of people that are really bored and. <laughs> enjoy us. So our business has been okay. We were able to kind of stagger shifts for a while and keep all of our five employees employed. And um, So yeah, we were very fortunate because our template or whatever is survivable in this, which was, you know, was a lucky break. Yeah, that's great. Well, so this podcast, I started it, as I mentioned, back in May, and the main focus is on songs and songwriting and on this episode we'll be talking about two songs one of my favorite albums and certainly the album of my college experience was golden smogs down by the old mainstream which i can't believe just turned 25 Ugh, rob you're killing me <laughs> <laughs> but uh we've also got two new songs that you're working on too we'll talk about at the end of the episode called of course, new yeah. Hell and rosary but just for to get us started i mean you've been in the business for a a long time and you took a bit of a break, but when did you, and I got to tell you, your, your music is one of the reasons I got into like trying to write songs. I never could, but I wanted to. That's very kind. It's like, I don't know, my experience with writing music, like if it's with a family and kids and a wife and a business, it's really, really tough. I think you have to be kind of narcissistic and a loner and really pursue it because, you know, you can't have, you know, diapers in one room and, 
a brooding minor key song in the <laughs> other one, you know. So, I mean, that was a problem for me. I, you know, I had other interests. And, you know, I was in the, the my main band, like, for 31 years, which is mm. just staggering to me. And I kind of felt like it was really fun and really tough. And then it was really fun and not so tough. And then it was really fun and it wasn't tough at all because we were successful for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of went down the gradient the other way. And it just got to be like, not very fun and really tough at the end. I mean, like, you know, like whoever, we used to kind of be, you know, Kid Rock's a bad analogy, but whoever would headline the music festival in Austin, Texas, or Dallas. And then at the end, it was like we were like four bands back from that. I was like, well, this is no fun, you know. And I kind of feel, you know, I think I'm I'm, I'm becoming more proud of our our body of work. I mean, I some of it I love and some of it I think is great. And um, I was just so involved with it. I mean, it's, really, I did that at the expense of everything else in my life. Mm. Well, I think I made 20 records in both bands which is yeah. and every time you do it you hear oh this is going to be the one this is the best one ever so you know there's a lot of kind of back slapping and disappointment and then there's a few really illuminating happy moments as well so going even before that I mean when did you first start thinking like I'm this is what I'm going to do like I'm, I'm, I'm good enough to get to you know, I can write these songs I can play in the band but when at what point were you like we're going for it well, I mean, with the band, I mean, when I was, a, my mother got remarried when I was in seventh grade, so I guess the next thing, 12? No, I was in sixth grade, so I was 11, and I had a stepbrother, and I only had two sisters, but I had, like, an older stepbrother. This is, like, the early 70s. And he was, mm-hmm. Well, like, patchouli oil, he had really long hair, and army fatigues, and he played guitar, so my mother figured, like, a good way to get Doug Sprintel, my, my new stepbrother, and I was, like, four years younger than him, to bond was, like, to give me guitar lessons. Mm-hmm. So I probably had five formal lessons from him before he fired me. <laughs> I just took it really serious. I mean, literally, like, playing guitar was my life in high school. I was, like, one of those kids that was kind of shy, and, I, you know, I learned every Aerosmith record and Thin Lizzy. I mean, I would just sit there, and I got pretty good, and that was, like, my comfort zone, and it's all I, I ever really wanted to do. So when it started to happen, it kind of felt natural. And when did you start writing your own songs? Because I think that's sort of what separates people like <laughs> well, me who like to play. In high school band in, in, in high school called At Last, we played a talent show, and there was four bands, and we finished fourth, and I pretty much quit because I was like, you know, <laughs> you guys are holding me back. I was just, you know, a bratty little 15-year-old. But I started writing songs in that band. I think I wrote one called Abrupt and Abrasive, one called First Day of School. I mean, they were, I don't know, they weren't even that bad, you know. Maybe mm-hmm. I peaked early. And then in Soul Asylum, um, it was called Odd Fast Rules, mm-hmm. and Carl and I lived together, and we wrote a song called Planet Zero, which is the first song that we ever wrote as a band together. And it never got recorded, but it's kind of a cool, kind of punk rock song. And that was probably 1982. I was 20 years old. Wow. Carl was 18. Because Carl had gone to London. He went there in high school, and he came back like in bondage trousers, leather jackets <laughs> with the dagger in his ear. I was like, what the fuck happened to you? And it was kind of, so he was kind of our like, our radar sort of for bullshit and vibe and everything. So I think when Carl um, ceased to be, it was, it was really hard for the band to kind of find her equilibrium. Hmm. So who are you listening to now? That he's, uh... I've been working on this record so long. I try not to listen to a lot of stuff. I don't want to like something infectious to get in my ear and then all of a sudden it's like on my record, you know? But I like, like Tom Waits. I like, I like the Clash. I like yeah. Buzzcocks. I mean, I like, I don't know. I mean, new stuff. I mean, I, I like the whole Steady. I think they're really cool. 
it's not really so new. Death Cab for Cutie, I think some of those records are really, really great melodies, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, was there something about the novella? The Clash is the first band that I fell in love with. I was probably 11 or 12, and I don't know how I discovered them. It was the fluky thing. But yeah, I mean, it changed my life, too. I saw them in 1977. The Clash headlined David Johansson played in the middle and the undertones oh opened and uh, they just like, it just blew me away. I was like, you know, the first song, like Joe Strummer kicks his, his music man amp off the drum riser and they I'm so bored with the U.S. I was just like, what the fuck is this? I mean, it was, literally that was a template for anything I've ever done musically. Wow. Yeah, because the Les Paul, was that a Mick Jones thing? Yeah, I mean, it's just for me, it's just like, I don't know, I mean, not a, I mean, Mick Jones could play, I mean, not super great singers, not the most, but it just like felt like it was so earnest to me. That's mm-hmm. something that was lost in music in the 1970s. Well, I kind of felt like, in a way, that between the interplay with you and, and Dave Ferner was sort of like that, because you know, Dave played at the, the telly, you had the Les Paul. And, yeah, yeah, definitely. But, it was not an accident that that yeah. we used and stuff, you know? Yeah. I tell you what, like years later, I was playing in New York with Soul Asylum, and we did two nights at the Beacon Theater with Keith Richards and Joe Strummer came to both shows and hung out with him. I tried like hell to get him up to play with us. Like, we'll, we'll do brand new Cadillac, you know? <laughs> and he was like, Nate, Nate, my time's come and gone, you know? But he has some very funny stories about being in a band with Mick Jones. He said it was like being in a band with Elizabeth Taylor, like was it hmm. with his entourage and shit. I always felt like Mick was one of the most underrated songwriters. If you think about oh, yeah, Day Free, that's just as good as yeah. it gets, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, I, I think that's probably about. the best like punk song ever written, like in terms of lyric and sentiment and just the way it just just tears off the the vinyl too. It's just amazing sounding. Yeah, and I could we could talk for hours. <laughs> yeah, that. Um, but you know, in addition to Soul Asylum, you know, you were a founding member of Golden Smog, which late eighties. You guys were bit, had recorded a number of albums throughout the mid two thousands. Yeah, yeah we kind of started as like a cover band. I think Dave Perner and Gary Lewis and myself opened for a Jayhawk show in Superior, Wisconsin. We were called, like, I don't know, I think we were called Baldy Pills Hashing Guns or something like that. It was some kind of, like, making fun of something, and we didn't take it very seriously. And it went, like, surprisingly well. And then we do kind of, like, shows at acoustic bars around, and then Craig got involved. And Craig's like, well, you know, if you want to be a real band, we got to start writing some songs. Come on, guys, we don't want to do all these covers. Craig Johnson, who's in Run, Westy Run. And mm-hmm. so... And then Tweedy had the same publishing company. I had Warner Chapel, and they were trying to figure out, like, get people to write together. He came to town for a few days and stayed at my house, and we wrote a couple of songs that turned up on Weird... Uh, I think it was on... Yeah, it was on Weird Tales. Okay. You know, it's just he was excited to be in the band. He Like, Uncle Tuflo had just broken up, and after he'd been in town for a while, we did, like, an unannounced show at the Uptown Bar with Jeff, Gary, Craig, Perlman, myself, and it really went well. And we're like, we should, we should start a band, you know? Yeah. Because I, well, I was kind of wondering, like, how did it go from just being a, a bunch of buddies playing cover tunes to, like, making it a serious effort? Because, I mean, down by the well, Craig is like, he's like the one, he's like, fuck, you know, what are we? He's like, write some songs, dude. And he kind of pushed us. We would write together a lot. I have some great pictures from down by the old mainstream at Pachyderm. Everybody kind of huddled around at tables, like, finishing lyrics to songs. And I think we did that record in, like, six days. I mean, wow. Came together really cohesively, and um, um, my friend Brian Paulson, who produced a lot of Uncle Tupelo records, produced it. I think it sounds great. You know, it was mm-hmm. fun and spontaneous, and kind of turned into a band like right at that moment. 
Yeah, so I was kind of curious how you how you were able to keep it fun, but I mean, it, it is. Well, we didn't tour there, very but... much. I mean, I think if we toured, we would have, you know, we would have broken up immediately. I mean, there's pretty strong personalities in that band, but it was funny. But we only really toured. I don't know, like in that whole time period, maybe six or seven weeks total. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and, think uh, I saw you twice at the nine thirty club. Yeah, and it was always kind of fun. I thought it was a good show because it was. I'd always kind of wanted to be in a band that was really ensemble styled where everybody stepped up for part of the show and I got to play piano on a couple things. And it was like, for me, it was really rewarding to not have to just go one, two, three, four and just kind of just shrug, 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 you know? Which, mm-hmm. I mean, for me, this album, I think it came out, I think I was 20. So it was like right when I was beginning to develop my own, my really my own taste. And it's led me to so many different, places because I mean, you guys came from different bands but each band had you know, each it felt like each person brought something new that yeah and some of it was written in advance and some of it was written um in the studio i know gary had that song um i'd heard with a jayhawks called won't be coming home and i love that yeah. song i was like fuck you're gonna give us that song craig had written a couple really nice songs and yeah just kind of really really we we're at this gorgeous studio in rural minnesota called pachyderm and it was like ponderosa but you just sit there there's no distractions and we really we really did it quickly i mean i i swear to god it wasn't more than six or seven days to hmm. write record mix that record hmm. so we worked long days and we kind of work in packs like someone would be oh let's finish this one you know gary and jeff would come in and do something and and then you'd be out sitting in the next room like kind of finish your lyrics for the next thing to boot up you know so i was wondering if because you all were coming like different phase, you know, parts of your career, but it must have been hard to get together. It was, and it was also, um, I had just signed to Columbia, which was a great thing for my band, and Donnie Einer had signed us, and it was a great thing for my band, and he, he was super, like, confused, I was like, where the fuck do you want to do this, you know, are you, are you saving your good songs for this other band, and he didn't want us to use our names, and it was like, but yeah, I mean, they were quite intimidated by it. The possibility of it being something that they were going to miss out on, it didn't feel stupid, you know? Yeah, I guess that's the industry. Yeah, welcome to show business, kid, right? Yeah, right. Well, so we're going to talk about two songs from Down by Gold Mainstream, Ill-Fated and Red-Headed Stepchild. So first one is Ill-Fated. This is the second song from the album. So this one, did you come in with this one or did you? No, I kind of, I had like a thing, kind of an idea and um, I kind of really rewrote the lyrics a lot. There's a lot of words for me in that song, but God, it was kind of, I think I was, just about ended in my first um, marriage, and it was kind of about that, and not very kind or friendly song, but it seemed really real at the time.
Amazing. I really worked on those lyrics, but it was like kind of at a place I was, I'd left the house I was living at, like with my family, and I was living in a, a motel downtown, and then mm. like the small tour, that record had just come out, we were going to go on tour for two weeks, I mean, it, it kind of felt like for me where I was that two months, I was, it was like salvation to like be out with your friends, it was just like so healing, you know, I was kind of, I don't know, I was thinking about the implications of you know, what a divorce means and, you know, and starting over with all that. But it was just, yeah, it was like the kind of that song is sort of desperation like that. And I really thought of that band as like, I mean, they're all like my best friends and it was really just such a great exercise and just like, it's kind of healing to play music with your friends. Yeah, I think, you know, from the listener's perspective, and I was, like I said, I think I was 20, so I probably didn't understand everything. <laughs> going on the well, it's nice when you get Gary Lewis and Jeff Tweedy to sing harmonies on your song. You can't yeah. really ask for a, a better well, deal than that, right? Yeah, because I mean, Gary can sing harmony with anybody. It seems like, yeah, I mean, I was so surprised the first time I heard him in the studio. We were doing, like, we did an EP of covers. I think we sang, like, uh, Easy to Be Hard, which is a Laura Nero song. And I was like, dude, I can't believe him. His voice is just so angelic in the studio. I mean, it's just, it just puts chills through you when you're sitting in the control room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the, the other lines I, I like are toward the, the end of, I've been dying to start living and just living to be dying. I really worked hard on those lyrics. I didn't want to have, like, dummy lyrics. And Yeah, I mean, there's a bit about, I think I was 26, maybe, and I dated this woman, and she had a pretty strong intention of getting married by the time she was 30, and I think I was maybe 28, and she was 29. And I kind of asked her to marry me somewhat reluctantly, and my life was about to change because that other record was going to come out, and, you know, and it was like we didn't have a chance, but it was really... I don't know. It just seemed like one of those things where, in hindsight, I probably should have known that it wasn't the timing wasn't right for me. But a lot of ill-fated is like as honest as I could be about how it felt, at least for me. I mean, there's no perspective of how she saw me in that song, but it's like how I dealt with it, you know. But it was very personal. It was very like an account of, I mean, I would just sit up at night and I would just have little notebooks and I just, you know, I probably had 10 times as many lyrics that I pared down to that. Mm. 
so I guess because I know some some folks maybe this will come up in other songs, but you know, I, I when I've talked to other writers, they say you know some songs just they come all at once, and some songs you're with them for weeks, days, years. Yeah, I, mean, I always write the music first, and then I try to write words, and typically I'll just come up with like kind of dummy words that you can kind of sing along with, have the right amount of syllables or phrases or whatever, so you can get an idea of where the melody is going to go. And then I constantly, with, with having, you know, cell phones and shit, I just set up and, like, if something comes to my head at 5 in the morning, I'll just, like, make a little sound file on my phone. And then the mm. next morning, I'll wake up and i got 20 things, like, ideas for yeah. songs. And some of them are halfway decent. So I, I tend to really rewrite lyrics a lot, not so much parts. And it's funny because Dave Turner in, in that band really didn't do it much. Like, he had a song, he would rarely change anything, which is another way of doing it. It's just completely opposite for me. So let's move on to Redheaded Stepchild, which is one of the catchiest songs I've ever heard. <laughs> I don't even know what that one's about. We said this guitar tech, and he's like, I'm going to beat you. He's from Nashville, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm going to beat you like a redheaded stepchild. I don't even know what that means. It's some southern thing. <laughs> but I had that kind of line, and I think, I don't know, I think it kind of was messing around with Perlman, and we were like trying to write some words. That one is just more like, words that were fun to sing without having any personal meaning and the chorus I don't get at all I just like I don't <laughs> even know where that came from it's like so not Dan Murphy or whatever but I like the little opening riff and it was kind of catchy and hooky and again I got like Jeff Tweedy to sing harmonies on it and mm-hmm. Craig did a guitar solo with a lighter it was like a slide and that sounds kind of crazy and it was kind of very off the cuff We needed a rock song, and then everybody said, well, Dan, you do rock songs. You got me? And I was kind of spent some time, and I came up with that. Yeah, because to me, this is, I think, the song I, I think I identified the most with, because, again, it's it seems I like... I like V. I mean, to me, that's oh, like, you know, she had a ring in the side of her nose. That was so far ahead of its time, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wearing other people's clothes. And the yeah. funny thing is, V exists. Like, Craig Johnson's living with her. Right oh, really? There are, there are a couple, yeah. Victoria Norvell. Oh, so yeah, that that to me was really a touching song because I, I knew her well, and it's just like that's a very pro pro relationship, pro woman song. You know, I just yeah. think it's lovely. Yeah, I mean that 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 I think that was like the first single. Was that it? Was that the yeah, thing? I think it was. Yeah, I don't even know if we got around to a second single on that record. It was but, you know kind of short. I mean, right with this, you know, I kind of thought. In hindsight, that those records could have had some wings if they were like maybe I don't know. I mean, I think that um, until you came along is like one of the funnest songs I've ever played on. But I think that was kind of long. Maybe it's like five minutes or five and a half minutes. But to me, if we condensed that a little bit and had a team try to market that or something, it could have been like a I don't know a subtle radio song. It's just so catchy and, and infectious. Yeah, well, I thought this song that had a, that song could have been a single. Yeah, it's got like kind of. But, you know, this little warbling Danny Murphy always is a little bit sharp and flat. I don't really have, like, the Bon Jovi voice, and I, I'm, I'm okay with that after all these years, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, just because I was thinking about this song, I don't know what it was about it. I think just because I was a like, naive little 20-year-old and thinking, I don't know where I belong. And then <laughs> yeah. a line like, um, yeah, know the kind of that kind of thing. 
But literally, it was just like I was trying to come up with words that would be fun to sing live, like to, that wouldn't embarrass me. That was like my head was like, oh, you want a rock song? I can do that. So when you're playing in a band with so many, I mean, and with, both with Soul Asylum and obviously with Colin Small, with so many different writers, how does that affect you as a writer? Well, I um, I was happy about the Golden Spa because I felt like there was hard for me to get my songs taken seriously in Soul Asylum at at some point because. It wasn't really Dave himself. Like, I don't want to do dance songs, but it was like Columbia kind of saw Dave as the front man and, you know, like visually and everything. So they had kind of an idea of how it would go. So I was very thankful for the Golden Spawn. I just, like, after a while, I just started, like, saving my songs for the Golden Spawn. I was like, fuck, I'll just record it with these guys, you know? And so before we leave the smog, you, you mentioned that you did a reunion show a couple of years ago. Not that yeah, long it was ago, on my right? birthday. It was, yeah. it was pretty fun. So we, I hadn't played expect- in a while, but I, I dusted off the cobwebs. and I don't know whether there's like 250 tickets in this really kind of posh basement room. We brought in a big PA, and it was like there was a lot of love in that room. It was actually very, very fun. So we decided to do a show at First Avenue, and that got canceled because of COVID, obviously. And um, that show will be rescheduled sometimes when, Club, when First Avenue opens again. So I don't know. It's like the, that band has a little bit of a history in this town, and there's you know a few hundred really, really loyal fans that will just flip out to see us again. So that's kind of yeah. nice. Yeah, I mean, because you think about the Minneapolis scene, you know, you know, back in the 80s with the replacements and everybody I mean, else. And... Was, we played like we had on the Basilica Block Party. You know, we played in front of six, seven, eight thousand 8,000 people pretty regularly when we play here or Chicago. So there was fans for that band. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of people that, kind of like you were saying, Rob, there's kind of like something that, resonated with them at a certain point in their life and it was like kind of their go-to record for a few months you know, I hear oh, that yeah. a lot oh it was for my four years of college I think I came out I was a sophomore and between that and being there because that's what led me because it, it was like desert of breadcrumbs it was like a yellow yeah. road that took me into so many yeah. different places sad and powerful that's, that record holds up really well you know yeah so let's move on to the new material and so you so you've you took a break and I took a I, very long break yeah, yeah. like six or seven years and I started playing guitar a little bit my father was like uh, Irish and he grew up in a Catholic orphanage and he passed away about eh, two and a half years ago he was like eighty six or seven but his dying wish was to play Danny Boy at his funeral oh and that's a fucking tough song so I said yeah. I gotta start practicing again so I sat in with like a a piano player and a vocalist and a violinist and um no I just I probably spent a month because I mean that's for me I hadn't played in so long and the first two weeks were brutal and then the third week I was like eh, getting a little better and then you know I did that and I was I started p- continually play I think that was like in October of a couple years ago and then in January I started recording this like working on this record so I am getting pretty fluent on guitar again but I, I had played you know more than a couple hours a year. 
in maybe five or six years. So I was really, really out of whack. What was the hardest part, do you think? Well, I mean, I could always hear what I wanted to play in my brain because I'd made so many records. And I could articulate it. I could hum it, but I couldn't make my fingers do it. So I was like, fuck. I was just, <laughs> I felt like I was disconnected from the ability to be able to do what I used to be able to do and that I could hear that I needed to do in my head. So that my head and my body and my fingers weren't in concert with each other, which was really frustrating. So where are you now? In, in I'm getting better. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just, for me, it's, you know, people, oh, it's like riding a bike. It's not like riding a bike. It's completely the opposite. If you don't play, you're going to lose all your function. And, you know, for me, we made a lot of, uh, I was very much a perfectionist. I'm not saying we perceived, you know, we got perfection, but that was the goal to play, you know, in key, sing in key, play, you know. So for me, I was very much like when I finished a part in solo sound, I go, I'm really happy with that and then move on. And, you know, two months later, it would still sound pretty good. So I was like, the perfectionist in me was really kind of beaten up. So is this going to be coming out later this year? What? Yeah. I believe we got like a little record deal and stuff. And, um, it was going to be the end of this year, but I think with COVID and everything, I think it'll probably be the beginning of next year because there's no point in, you know, touring or whatever, doing shows or a record release party. Yeah. But it has been, it's been kind of fun. It was um, kind of a chance meeting with a guy I know who was a musician that I never really crossed paths with, but he owns a few restaurants in the neighborhood where I live. And we kind of became buddies and I went to like holiday party at his house yeah, the year before COVID, I went up to the studio and I go, dude, this is nice. It's a very humble but lovely and, you know, just minimal amount of stuff, but it was all. And he played me a couple of things he did and it kind of sounded like, oh, I don't know, maybe like Harvest, like Neil Young, mm-hmm. like that really kind of warm, resonant, low-endy. And I was like, wow, it just kind of drew you in. I like his production style was really interesting to me. So his name is Jeff Perendahl, okay. and we have been writing and recording a record together. Okay, so it's the For two about of you. Fourteen months, yeah. Okay. And we have nine songs done. We got to do two more, and then I think we're gonna put it out and and see what happens. I have very modest expectations for it, but I'm proud of the material, and it's it's been really fun. It's been a great pandemic project. Now it's like, what else do you do? Right. And it sounds like one of them, Fresh New Hell, appears to be inspired by. Yeah, yeah. I would I would probably never have done that now. Because it's it's just but I kind of started writing that in February like I'd be sitting in my couch up here and like I'd, Rachel Maddow would be on and like there'd be three minutes that would talk about the pandemic and like what is this going to turn into you know so I kind of look at the corner of my eye and I started writing like this unrequited love song and I kind of started thinking about like Romeo and Juliet in a pandemic and that's like the first verse kind of. And then I was like, I think there's a line like, should we kill the virus or let the virus kill us too, which is like mm-hmm. very Romeo and Juliet. And then like in hindsight, like three months later, I was like, fuck, I just don't even want to put this out. It seems like really heavy handed sort of, but it's sort of like a timeline to what that felt like, at least to me. 
Yeah, because when I heard it, I was trying to think the different directions because it, it goes in different directions. I feel like <laughs> I wrote some of the other verses, like uh, what is it, playing on Adderall? It's like it's very, it gets very political and it gets very much like the response to COVID. But the first verse in the choruses, I kind of thought of like, like you know, like young lovers trying to deal with this. friend that has like a nine-year-old daughter and I was like, I'm like you know what is that like to take your daughter to like not to school in a mask every day like what is that like so that the courses are you know are kind of inspired by what it would seem like for a nine-year-old that's trying to be brave and not afraid and like how it affects them socially and what they're able to understand about it Yeah, because I was thinking the same thing when I, when I was listening to it and going over the lyrics. I thought, you know, this is like a, a how do you manage like a, for a, a kid trying to make life in this? Yeah, time? I mean, it's, I can't <laughs> imagine. I mean, we were going to do, she ended up, she, she sang, her name is Eloise. She's a friend of my daughter. And she sang the chorus. It's like in a really lovely, like nine year old girl voice. And we were going to use it on the record, but without like a video presentation, I mean, you couldn't really tell like what it was. You couldn't see. What it was, and it was this was when the pandemic was really bad, so we weren't comfortable having her come to the studio. But yeah, I mean, I really, I had reservations about it, but I think in hindsight, I'm kind of, I don't know. I mean, it's like, it's sort of like that whole thing in real time, at least how it was to me. Yeah, I mean, it's like a moment in time. But then I, I yeah. think you, you broadened it by with the end on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what I was thinking on there. That's just like, that's just weird. <laughs> it's kind of a good line. I was like. I don't know, it's kind of a throwaway line, but I thought it was kind of funny.
Um, well, I want to thank you so much for your time today, Dan. Got yeah. One more to song to talk about and mm-hmm. um, rosary. And again, this had that catchy hook. I mean, is there a secret for just coming up with those kind of catchy? I don't know. That guitar line just like it's so sideways. I was really impressed with it. I kind of put a little thing. I was trying to kind of do like a cure like thing, like a real breezy. I don't know, like. Euro thing, and I thought the drummer and the bass player that I've been working with, Ben and Pat, they just killed that time. I'm so happy with the rhythm track, and um, I don't know, it was kind of a love song, you know, I mm-hmm. grew up Catholic, but I, I don't have any Catholic affiliations at all, I didn't, but I just like the line, like, hold on tight, because love is like a rosary, just to me, it was the one that Jeff went Mark with, they go, that's your line, you got to just say that over and over again, I was like, okay. That's a great metaphor. I mean, I, I was raised Catholic too, and I just think of my Irish grandmother holding onto her rosary. <laughs> like, yeah, you got to hold on to like the clutching, trembling yeah. hand, and that's kind of what love could feel like too. Yeah. There's another line that's kind of poignant. The studio that we're recording at is it's right past the governor's mansion in uh, in St. Paul, and I was driving by one day, and there's all these people like with Confederate flags and pickup trucks, and no masks, and we're like all upset about you know the the state law, the, you know, the mandate to wear masks. And I was driving by, and I um, kind of came up with that line, the rapture's coming, but it's not. Originally, it was the rapture's coming, but it's not for you. Like, what's going to save these people, you know? Mm-hmm. And I thought that was kind of funny. I changed it to me. Yeah, I mean, it was like kind of just driving in. I just said that line to Jeff. I said, God, all these fucking idiots in front of the governor's mansion. I said that. He goes, yeah, that should be a line in your songs. He kind of like documents the things that I say that are, he deems as poignant and we refer back to them, mm-hmm. which is nice. Mm-hmm. How long did they take it to write the lyrics for this? That was a lot. It was kind of, you know, maybe a month. And again, there's a whole box of words that didn't get used that I just kind of picked the best ones. But I'm actually really happy with that song. I really like the way it sounds. It's something I haven't heard before. Yeah, but I like how it ends, too, because it's like a crescendo, and there's a, kind of a bit of a nursery rhyme. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was like from uh, Winkin', Blinkin', and Nod, I think. I just started thinking nursery rhymes when I was like, ollie, ollie, income free. So I really wanted mm-hmm. to kind of delve into that. It teaches you a cool way to count to seven, right? Yeah.
Um, so you mentioned that you had a lot of words that you didn't use. How how do you edit yourself? I mean, how does that? How hard is that? Well, Rob, it's like the light of day. You go, you know, like sometimes you go down this path, and uh, you know, I'm really critical. I didn't want to repeat words a lot. I didn't want to sing the same choruses over because I haven't made that many records where I'm doing the majority of writing. I think that's kind of lazy. So I've been kind of working on that sort of hard. I mean, Jeff, who I'm writing and recording with, we call it like Juco College freshman lit class. <laughs> I ain't trying to write these words, but, you know, I just want to... I always thought when I was writing with Soul Asylum in particular, like, you got to say things that you, you can say over and over again and you can sell and believe every night. I mean, if you have a line that you just... It's a cringer for you. You just cringe every fucking night you're up there singing it, you know? So I was trying to eliminate, I mean, that um, Fresh New Hell, I mean, it, the first verse, some of those were like, you know, not. It, they were just unbelievably bad. So I played it for Jeff, and he's like, I don't think I get this one. <laughs> you know? mm. and just because the lyrics were all over the place, it was like, clap on. It was just craziness, you know, but it turned into something that was more cohesive. But I kind of wanted that one to be like a real stream of consciousness, dirgy. I was thinking like On the Beach, that Neil Young record. That the oh, Beatles. yeah kind of craziness and I don't know like word salad so that's really what I was trying to do like just try to be spontaneous and out there and cal not calculated in the final analysis but just throw a lot of stuff out there and see what's stuck yeah. well I, mean, I, I think they're they're great and I look forward to hearing the rest yeah when this comes I'm excited by it I mean I have very humble expectations but I'm excited and it was a really good project and I Love the guy I'm working with, and I'm actually really proud of the music. I think the people that I played it for, they're like, wow, it's not totally what you'd expect, I don't think, either, which is always a good thing. And, you know, it was kind of queued up to be fall of this year, and then they're like, you know, we do five releases a year, and we're so far behind, it would make more sense in the spring of next year, which is probably true, you know. I just hope it gets out there and people, you know, can hear a song and decide if they like it. I mean, again, I, I don't expect it to you know, charter, but it, it's just good for me to do something. I, I felt like I was so disconnected from music. It feels really good to to give it a roll again and feel like remember why it was important to me all those years ago. Mm. I mean, that's mm -hmm. really what it's about. And so as you are starting to wrap this album up, where can folks, if they're interested in learning more about you and you have to do. Are, are you, I know you're on Twitter, but anywhere else? I know you've got gallery. Instagram too. Other Dan Murphy. Okay. And I've been playing some um, music little threads or like mixes and stuff. And people have been reacting to that. God, the last time I made a record was I made a smog record in Spain and it was a whole different universe than, you know, how you drop a record. It was on Lost Highway. So I have to get current and figure out how to do it. And I mean, for me, I'd rather just give the music away to people that want it. Like, you know, but I don't know if that, how that works in this day and age. I mean, Basically, well, once a technology exists to, you know, like Uber, you're never going to go back to taxis. And I kind of feel that's what happened to music. So, like, why do you even sell music? It just doesn't make sense to me, you know? Yeah. From what I understand, Spotify is basically giving it away for, for free to yeah, the Yeah, or even like Amazon, whatever. You can, for 10 bucks a month, you can have any song ever and play it whenever the fuck you want. I mean, that's a pretty good deal, right? Yeah. But is it good for the artists? Well, actually, you do. I mean, I get you know, some fairly significant money with, like, solo song, but that song was so big, but I think it, you know, has 190 million Spotify listens, and, you know, you get 
a few thousand bucks. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good deal, but I mean, that's a lot of downloads, you know, so it's not even pennies per, per listen, you know? Yeah. But, I, you know, I just kind of feel, I don't know. I mean, remember that whole thing when Metallica made such a big deal of that? Yeah. Kind of yeah. like, you kind of look like, I don't know, it just seems like once a technology exists and there's a new paradigm, that's what it is. It's never going to go back, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like on one level, it's a lot easier for people to be heard. Yeah, and but it's also like there's so much stuff out there. Like for me, if I were to like say, you know, I haven't listened to underground music in 15 years. I used to love that, you know, like Geraldine Fibbers and mm-hmm. Rilo Kiley, whoever it was. I just love that shit. And like for me to like get a template, it'd be hard to find just because there's so much out there. I bet you there's just great stuff. But it, there used to not be as much material to wade through. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely. it's probably, I mean, people that really love music probably are really good at it. But if you're like sort of a casual fan, it's, it can be a little bit unnerving to find new stuff that you like. Yeah. It's not like walking in the same goodie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or like a guitar center or something. You're like, oh, yeah. how come all these Stratocasters are only $89? You know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> They're not really Stratocasters, you know? Yeah. Well, I certainly enjoyed this. Thank you for doing it, and thanks for taking the time and uh, for caring about the music. I really appreciate that. Oh, yeah, and thank you, Dan, for doing this. This has been a lot of fun for me. So, yeah, that was pretty cool, wasn't it? A little long, yeah, but come on. I'm interviewing Danny Murphy from Solo Asylum and Golden Smog. Doesn't get any better than that, does it? Anyway, thanks for tuning in. I've got this awesome video project coming up that I'm going to be talking about really soon, so stay tuned, and stay tuned. Thanks for listening.